0: This is a production of DermCast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me to speak today. It's an honor to be here, and uh, hopefully this will be a helpful talk for you guys. Uh, Just to start, I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. Uh, Really, the goals of my talk are to give you guys some really practical take-home points, and hopefully my handouts kind of summarize a lot of the take-home points that I'll be going over this morning. Um, The goals of my talk, again, are to identify medications that can increase non melanoma skin cancer risk and understand multidisciplinary approaches to modifying these these medications. Um, To review treatment and recent developments in the management of field cancerization and skin cancer in immunosuppressed patients, and also described some screening recommendations for immunosuppressed patients, such as uh, solid organ transplant recipients. So immunosuppression. uh, Immunosuppression can kind of have a vague and kind of broad definition. Um, A lot of times we're thinking about it from a perspective of solid organ transplant recipients or stem cell transplants, but uh, you also have to factor in other, other Disease conditions, or even medication-induced immunosuppression, such as HIV/AIDS, cancers like leukemia, lymphoma, multiple myeloma, hereditary conditions, um, and of course, medication and management that we as dermatologists are often prescribing and administering. And these include UV therapy, um, azathioprine for various conditions, um, TNF-alpha inhibitors, etc. Now. The most important thing to recognize is that immunosuppressive medications can increase the risk for malignancy, um, because what they're doing is it's decreasing our immune system's ability to fight off skin cancer. Over 300,000 people in the US alone have an organ transplant. And a lot of my talk is on organ transplant. You guys can hear me OK, right? All right, cool. Um, over over 300,000 people in the U.S. Um, have an organ transplant. And a lot of my talk does focus on organ transplant as that's my um, interest. And, um, but and we'll, we'll be talking about uh, um, some of the other conditions as well. Um, within solid organ transplant recipients, there is a 65 to 200 times increased risk for developing squamous cell skin c- c- cancer. There's a 16 time increased risk for developing basal cell and a two to three time increased risk for developing melanoma. Now, what's so important about this is that the mortality is nine times greater in these solid organ transplant recipients compared to the general population. And the melanoma mortality is over three times greater as well. Now, squamous cell is still the most frequent skin cancer in transplant recipients. But melanoma still remains the most deadly, especially in the following patients, white males who have had a heart or lung transplant and are over the age of 50. And in those patients, we have to be extra cautious and extra aware um, with our management and screening. Another important consideration is patients with CLL. Cutaneous squamous cell is, is incredibly more aggressive in this patient population. And CLL patients with squamous cell or melanoma have much poorer outcomes. This includes local recurrence, nodal metastases, distant METs, and even death. HIV is another consideration, um, though the degree of increased risk for skin cancer is not as similar to CLL and solid organ transplants. There is a 3.6 increased risk in men and a 2.1 increased risk in women. Those who are on heart therapy or antiretroviral therapy have a much lower risk compared to those who are not on therapy. And and really, the next part of my talk is going to be 10 take-home tips, uh, 10 tips to help manage these immunosuppressed patients to take home with you. So tip number one, educate, educate, educate. Educational intervention can improve sun-protective behavior and decrease skin damage in sun-exposed areas. Now, the increased risk in this immunosuppressed population is inevitable. And what we can do is educate them, because it may lead to early detection, primary prevention, and uh, close surveillance. If, If anyone follows organ transplant recipients, if you just ask them how many doctors visits they have, it's overwhelming they're probably seeing a doctor at least once a week, if not more, and the closer they are from their transplant, just a few weeks out, they're sometimes in a doctor's office two to three times a week. And this, this is just for lab work, biopsies, general checks, etc. Now, Now, from a transplant physician perspective, their goal is to salvage the organ and do anything possible to salvage that new organ. This may mean increasing their immunosuppressive medications. This may mean kind of not neglecting other aspects of their care, but really focusing in on making sure that that organ survives. Our responsibility as a dermatologist is to ensure that these patients and also these transplant docs understand the importance of skin cancer screening and primary prevention. Tip number two, screen early and screen often. What we do at UT Southwestern is we've created a relationship with the transplant team um, and we get them in before they even have their transplant. Now most transplants, to get even placed on a list, there's a checklist that they should see a dermatologist. And sometimes it's kind of vague who they're seeing. Sometimes even it's a PCP kind of just doing a skin check. But we think obviously we're the experts in skin and detecting skin cancer. So we recommend being seen by a dermatologist um, and it's a perfect time to educate them on some protective and behavior modification. If we intervene early, we're much likely to have a better outcome long-term. In addition, we're much more active in biopsying lesions that we're concerned about, rather than just in cryotherapy or whatnot. So we biopsy much more frequently in transplant patients because they just tend to have some subclinical spread that sometimes you just don't recognize. Um, You know, sometimes we're thinking, hey, it's a hypertrophic AK, and we'll try to freeze it once or twice in an immunocompetent patient. In transplant patients, we're a lot more aggressive with biopsy, and they often tend to be invasive squames that we may have otherwise thought would have been hypertrophic AK in in an immunocompetent patient. Now why is it important to screen um, patients before they're even placed on a list? Because there are certain times that we may want the transplant team to delay placing that patient on a list especially if they've had Merkel cell or invasive melanoma. That being said, melanoma in situ, there is no need to wait to be placed on the list. There's no time gap that they should wait. And this is a great paper um, published by Fiona Zwald. Um, she's out of Emory, um, that kind of great, gives great guidelines of how long the transplant team should wait based on the, their skin cancer diagnosis. Um, I'm happy to share this paper with you if, if, and the reference with you if you guys want. I have My email's at the end. I'll be happy to email it to you. But this has really helped us guide our kind of advice to the transplant team whether they should wait or there's no need to wait. This is a great paper. Now, the other thing, the other reason that we want to screen early and screen often is there was a study done of CLL patients that showed low compliance with skin cancer screening guidelines. And really, currently, there's no great guidelines for any immunosuppressed patients. What we kind of go off of is experience and, um, and the risk that the patient may have. And I'll, and I'll give you some of my recommendations of how frequently we're screening patients. In our opinion, it's better to over-screen than under because the last thing we wanna do is let a patient wait a year for their next follow-up visit and then they're coming back in with six to eight skin cancers. And we've all had this at some point occur to us um, just because they thought it was okay, that one year follow-up was was okay. Now, renal and liver transplant recipients are at a lower risk for developing squamous cell compared to heart and lung transplant. So in, in renal and liver transplants, we actually stretch things out a little bit more Um, If they've had no history of skin cancer, and depending on their skin type, their sun exposure, usually every six to 12 months may be okay for them. If if you're a little bit concerned, move it to six months. If they're kind of type five skin, type six skin, potentially lower um, sun exposure, maybe once a year is okay for them. Now, if they've had one skin cancer diagnosis, we've automatically bumped them up to every four to six months for the rest of their life. No questions asked. They've made one, they're going to make a second one, it's just a matter of when. And so we're going to make sure that we catch it early and are able to treat and intervene early. If they've had more than one skin cancer diagnosis, we're seeing them every three to six months. Um, And usually if they've had like four or five, it's pretty much every three months for the rest of their life. And a lot, of the, a lot of the things that we factor in and how frequently we're screening them is how long they've been on immunosuppression. So the longer they are from the transplant, the more chronic immunosuppressed they've been, so that a higher risk for developing skin cancer. We look at their background sun damage, their field cancerization. We look at the type of immunosuppression that they've been exposed, exposed to um, throughout their post-transplant life. And I'll talk about a lot of the medications that y- you should review and, and be mindful of. And we also look at if they've ever had a voriconazole. Voriconazole is probably one of the worst drugs for a transplant patient, increases the risk for skin cancer tremendously, and I'll be talking about that in a little bit. So it's a lot of those background factors that kind of help guide us to when and how frequently we should be screening these patients. Now, for heart and lung transplant recipients, we are screening them more frequently. Every single patient is seeing us every six months regardless. Because again, it's not a matter of if they're gonna develop a skin cancer, oftentimes it's a matter of when. Now there are exceptions, you know, those, those patients who are, have been totally sun protected their whole life, you know, um, a higher fits uh, skin patcher type. But that being said, we like to kind of be uniform in screening and, and we kind of see them every six months. If they've had one skin cancer diagnosis, automatically every three to six months for life. Um, and if it's more than one, Every two to four months, and some patients who are developing a skin cancer a month, I'm seeing them every single, every four weeks, pretty much. So it's, it's kind of that inner gut that gestalt that hey, this is a patient who just keeps developing them. I'm going to see this patient a lot more frequently than someone who's not. And again, we talk um, and 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 some of the guides that help guide us um, are you know the number of skin cancers, years of immunosuppression, et cetera. Again, it's better to over screen than underscreen. I can't kind of emphasize that enough. If a patient's ever been exposed to voriconazole, so it's not a matter of just reviewing their current medication list, it's looking at their past medication list and kind of specifically asking them, have you ever been on voriconazole? If they have, we pretty much screen them every six months. Um, Patients who've had voriconazole, they almost look like that XP type picture of lentigines covering their entire sun exposed areas, especially if they've been on it for a number of years. I'll be talking a little bit about more voriconazole in a bit. Tip number three, review medications. This is probably the most important take-home tip because this is where you as, as, as the dermatologist can intervene. So what are you looking for when you're um, reviewing medications? You should look to see if they've ever been exposed to voriconazole and other photosensitizing or phototoxin medications. The longer they've been on this medication, the greater the risks there are. You should look at the n- types and number of immunosuppressant medications. Some people are on just one immunosuppressant medication. Usually the liver and renal, they titrate them down to one. If you're heart and lung, oftentimes you're on two to three medications for life. Again, so the more you're on, the greater your risk. We also are specifically looking for azathioprine. Azathioprine is, is, is not the greatest immunosuppressant medication, it increases um, a patient's risk um, notably, so we're, we're always kind of screening for that. A lot of transplant institutions, their new immunosuppressive regimens do not include azathioprine and eliminate them. That being said, we, we, there's a lot of tra- you know kidney transplant patients who you see who've been on you know stable on the same medication for 20 plus years, and, and the transplant doc is hesitant. Um, to make any changes. It's, it's kind of like why mess with something that's not broken, but we will push them to make these changes because azathioprine is not the greatest medication to be on for, for long term. We also look to see, again, the duration of immunosuppressive medications. Um, the greater the cumulative dose, the greater risk for skin cancer. And we talked about this already. Heart and lung transplant recipients have a much greater risk compared to kidney and liver transplant recipients because they're on more medications at higher doses um, with overall more intense anti-rejection regimens. These are the medications we're kind of looking at. Voriconazole, azathioprine, which calcineurin inhibitors they're on, whether they've been switched to an mTOR inhibitor. Um, and. Uh, you know, and, and I'll briefly talk about TNF-alpha inhibitors since we frequently prescribe these as well. In terms of voriconazole, voriconazole um, was improved in 2003. Um, it was a great medication when it came out and still is um, because it's much less toxic than the old medication that was used to treat a lot of these condi- um, um, infections. Um, and that was amphotericin B, which, you know, if you ever st- Remember studying for boards? It was always called Amph- amphotericin B, terrible drug. Voriconazole, an improvement, but it has its risks. It's a second-generation antifungal um, to t- use to treat aspergill- um, aspergillus, candida, um, fusarium, etc. And it's prescribed both for prophylaxis as well as for treatment. Um, it's really frequently used in lung and bone marrow um, transplant recipients as prophylaxis and we at our institution had to educate our transplant docs a lot on the risks of voriconazole because you know we'll prescribe Valtrex, right? Or or, um, Valcyclovir, I'm sorry, um, for years at a time, right? And we don't necessarily worry about the side effects. That's what they were doing with voriconazole, um, using it for prophylaxis because they didn't want anything to happen. Unfortunately, voriconazole has much more severe implications. Um, another kind of population to uh, think about is cystic fibrosis patients. Most of them have been exposed to voriconazole at some point in their life as well. Now, voriconazole, it's, it's phototoxic and can even induce a pseudoporphyria. The most important thing to, to look for, if they are on volariconazole, you need to educate them. It's complete sun avoidance. It's not a matter of, yes, it's okay to go to the beach and pool, whatnot, and as long as you're covered, no. It's, it's really they need to adhere to a strict sun avoidance while they're on this medication because um, the implications are pretty severe. It accelerates the risk for skin cancer tremendously, both squamous cell as well as melanoma. The squamous cells that develop in patients who've been on volariconazole also tend to be much more aggressive. Now, phototoxicity is a dose-dependent. So every 10 grams of voriconazole, the phototoxic reaction increases by about 9%. So for six months if they're on it, it's a 46% incidence of phototoxic reaction. If they've been on it for 18 months, it's about a 65% incidence of a phototoxic reaction. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but on the labeling, it actually says, if the patient were to develop a squamous cell carcinoma or a melanoma, Voriconazole should be discontinued. Unfortunately, there's not many great alternatives until more recently. So yes, you know the transplant docs were aware that they developed a squamous cell melanoma, but unfortunately had to keep these, on, keep these patients on the medication, knowing how bad of a drug it could be for future skin cancer development, because it was the only thing used to treat their infection. Now, if a patient is on Voriconazole, limit the patient's exposure if, it, if possible, and this is where the discussion with the transplant team is so important. Um, if it's only being used for prophylactic purposes, try to get that transplant doc to discontinue it. Um, if it's if the patient's on for treatment, see if the transplant doc would be willing to prescribe an alternative. Now, more recently, this is literally in the last year, we have two um, new alternatives, isovuconazole. It's newer, there is a potential to be less effective, um, but it has shown to work um, for the indications. Another medication is posaconazole. Initially, it was an incredibly high cost. Um, the bioavailability bioavail- was somewhat thought to be unreliable, but there is a new oral formulation that is cheaper and w- with reliable bioavailability. So patients with if they're on if they're getting it for prophylaxis, try to get them off it. If they're using it for treatment, if it's gonna be a long treatment course, and sometimes the treatment course is six to nine to 12 months, see if the transplant doctor be willing to switch them to isovuconazole or posticonazole. And anytime a patient is on moriconazole, make sure they're adhering to complete sun avoidance while on therapy. The next medication to talk about is azathioprine. It's an anti metabolite anti-rejection medication, and it inhibits the repair of UV-induced cellular damage. This is what increases the skin cancer risk. Organ transplant recipients on azathioprine are over two times more likely to develop squam cell than a transplant recipient not on azathioprine. In addition, they have about 1.3 times increased risk for developing melanoma. There are newer alternatives like mycophylinic acid and um, tacrolimus which have lower risks for squam cell uh, skin cancer development. Mycophenolate was um, an anti approved in 1995, um, and it really has replaced azathioprine in most regimens. That being said, there are older docs who, um, or, or transplant recipients who've been on and stable on the same medication for decades, for example, who are still on azathioprine. Um, and it, it would really help the patient long-term if you're able to convince that doc to switch them to a newer anti-metabolite. And, and patients do really, really well on, on mycophenolate. The other medication to consider is calcineurin inhibitors. Now, the old calcineurin inhibitor, which we often prescribe for psoriasis and whatnot, cyclosporine, was, uh, was approved in 1983. The newer calcineurin inhibitor, tacrolimus, was approved in 1994. Now, both do have some UV-sensitizing properties. Um, they're thought to be potentially um, um, neoplastic um, as well. But while many of the patients on this have high rates of skin cancer. It could be due to older regimens where a patient was on cyclosporin and azathioprine at the same time. So it's not totally clear that cyclosporin is as bad um, as um, azathioprine or bad at all, per se. Um, but, but it's important just to be aware of these medications. Now, some studies show no difference between tacrolimus and cyclosporin. some studies show cyclosporine being slightly worse than tacrolimus in terms of skin cancer. It's kind of the debate's out. Um, it's just important to be aware of these medications, and the most important thing is making sure they're off the azathioprine, if at all possible. Now there's this debate of, of um, mTOR inhibitors. An example is sirolimus, um, uh, another name for it, rapamycin. It's thought to suppress tumor growth or proliferation in various animal modules, and it's, there's a potential to decrease um, malignancy. The, the biggest question is, and, and some recent reports have shown an increased mortality risk um, on patients with these mTOR inhibitors, specifically cardiovascular and infection-related deaths. So about four or five years ago, Every transplant doc the second or, or, or dermatologist was even recommending it. the second a patient developed um, a bad skin cancer like a melanoma or aggressive squam, we kind of advocate the switch over to serolimus um, uh, or an mTOR inhibitor. More recently, we're, we've kind of paused a little bit because of the potential for worse outcomes with the actual organ. Now, initial studies did report a decrease in squam cells when serolimus was substituted for calcineurin inhibitors. That being said, one study showed that the impact is only there if you make that switch after the patient has developed only one uh, squamous cell. If you kind of try to do the switch after they develop multiple, it's, it's thought to not have much of a benefit. It also does not appear to decrease the risk for other cancers that we're really aware of, but again, more research is necessary. The other big concern is that um, mTOR inhibitors, um, there are higher rates for acute rejection of the actual transplant. So that's why it's still kind of unclear. Now there's some institutions such as UCSF, every single patient does get switched pretty early on, but other institutions have kind of taken a little step back and are really trying to review the risks, benefits uh, of switching. When do we switch at UT Southwestern? We we will kind of use it if a patient develops another malignancy or a metastatic squame. Um, Then then we try to switch it. We're we're not advocating every single patient who's had a single squamous cell to be switched um, because there's a lot of other factors that need to come into play because we don't want the patient to have worse outcomes with cardiovascular um, or infection, et cetera. Um, TNF-alpha inhibitors this is another medication that we often prescribe and, and see being prescribed by rheumatologists and other physicians. Um, there is a theoretical risk for um, increased risk for skin cancer, but there are disease-related factors or past treatments that may play a role in this increased risk. For example, patients who are on azathioprine um or, or patients, um, rheumatoid arthritis patients, I'm sorry, who are currently on TNF-alpha inhibitors, at some point they may have been on azathioprine for the rheumatoid arthritis, and that may be the reason that they're developing these increased skin cancers, and not truly the TNF-alpha inhibitor itself. There have been a lot of more recent case reviews and systematic reviews that really don't show any increased risk for skin cancer development with TNF-alpha inhibitors alone, um, but usually it's in rheumatoid arthritis patients who've had Previous history of isothyroid exposure. This is a new medication that, um, just to make you guys aware of, um, uh, ruxolitinib. It's a drug used to treat myelodysplasia or polycythemia, and it's it's a pretty nasty drug in terms of that it's associated with multiple aggressive eruptive squamous cells. Now, there's only been a few case reports published on this medication because um, it's not a drug that's commonly used. Um, it, it has very specific indications, but just be aware if a patient, for some reason, is developing a lot of squamous cells more abruptly, make sure that they're not on this drug and kind of discuss with their um, hematologist and oncologist um, whether, this, whether there are alternatives to this medication for them. Um, and, and in the next few months to years, I'm, I'm sure we will see a lot more kind of information about this drug and the increased risk for squamous cell. Step number four, um, review and track skin cancer history. I can't kind of emphasize this enough. Sometimes in in, in in immunocompetent patients, you know, some of these patients, farmers being outdoors, they're just developing basal cells here and there and squamous cells. You just don't necessarily kind of truly account and calculate each and and every skin cancer. And our transplant recipients are immunosuppressed um, um, patients. It's incredibly important because it will help guide us um, to intervene early in terms of chemoprophylaxis, et cetera. So if a, if a patient develops um, about um, two squamous cells in a three-month period, we essentially start screening them again every three months um, potentially for life. We At that point, we start discussing with the transplant team and the primary team, can we decrease any of the medications, whether it's just a dosing or switch the medications in any way? And at that point, we're also starting um, acetretin, um, which is, again, a systemic retinoid that is, is very, very helpful for chemoprophylaxis, and as long as it's not contraindicated. If a patient is developing about six squamous cells within a year, again, we start to screen them every six to eight weeks, pretty much for life, if not shorter um, intervals. And again, we are really advocating for decreasing the immunosuppression regimen as much as possible. We'll start acetretin, um, if it's not contraindicated. And then we also consider referring them to oncology at that point to start oral capsetabine for prophylaxis. And I'll t- mention that in, in a few minutes. Um, tip number five, aggressively treat field cancerization. So if a patient, if, if a patient has bad sun-damaged skin, we really don't just say it's bad sun damage. In these immunosuppressed patients, it's field cancerization. And it's a matter of not if, one of those kind of actinic keratosis will develop into a squamous cell, it's a matter of when. Um, and for these patients, we're much more aggressive in field treating them, um, whether it's post-surgery or MOse, or just trying to tackle you know, as many sun exposed areas as possible um, with various field treatments. Um, what we'll do is if a patient has kind of any degree of kind of hyperkeratotic AKs in a setting of bad sun damage or field cancerization, we'll actually debulk and curette these. So we'll numb them up with local anesthesia, we'll get a curette, and on literally any kind of that hyperkeratosis, we are, we are debulking them and getting it to the point where you'll kind of see pinpoint bleeding at those sites, um, And for for tolerability, we do recommend anesthetics, uh, making sure that they're um, numb before. And then in these patients, we're repeating field treatment much more frequently. You know, in your immunocompetent patients, maybe once every three years or four years, we will recommend blue light. Some of our transplant or immunosuppressed patients, we're doing field treatment every single year, if not months at a time. And it's not a pleasant experience for them. Um, That being said, we'd much rather prevent developing uh, uh, of a squamous cell um, and, and uh, one with a bad outcome, we'd rather them kind of be somewhat uncomfortable instead. These are the topicals that we will prescribe. Um, most commonly, we're doing 5-FU. Um, our regimen, and again there are so many different regimens, we'll do Monday through Friday um, for three weeks. We like the weekends off because they feel like they can kind of get a break and things can calm down a little bit. Um, we'll take a week break in between and then th- for three more weeks. I think those weekends off are incredibly helpful for patients. Um, it kind of gives them a breather. We'll tell them sometimes just to use plain pletrolatum on those weekend days to help soothe things and help things calm down, and then they feel a lot more comfortable getting um, started again on Monday. Sometimes, um, for any reason, if 5-FU is not um, per, um, covered by the insurance, we will sometimes use Amiquimod, though probably less frequently. Um, Again, we will use a um, nightly regimen Monday through Friday for three weeks, one week off, and then nightly again for three more weeks. If a patient does not develop um, any kind of redness, irritation um, that we would want to expect after the first week, we will actually bump them up to BID. And some patients just need that BID Monday through Friday treatment to, to get the same response that um, we want to see with um, 5-FU. Um, Ingenial, maybe mebutate, another um, more recent field cancerization um, therapy. Again, face, scalp, it's for three days. Extremities, it's for, um, uh, for two days at a higher concentration. I don't really prescribe ever um, diclofenac but that's another potential option for field cancerization. There was a very new um, recent study um, just published in, um, online in November of 2016 where um, the researchers would actually combine 5-FU with um, calcipatrial ointment Um, And they would use this BID for four days with significant results, Um, 87.8% reduction in AKs compared to 26% of just 5-FU mixed with Vaseline. So we have tried to shorten regimens. Again, six weeks is a long time to put topical 5-FU. So I think a lot more studies are being done to see ways to shorten regimens. Um, And again, this is a very recent publication. I've tried this on a handful of patients. Half of the people did respond pretty well. Half the people didn't. And again, we're still figuring out, did we tell the patient to put enough on at the same time? Um, how were they mixing it, et cetera? So there's things that we as prescribers need to figure out, but this is thought to be um, a way to shorten durations of, of field therapy um, by mixing um, 5-FU with trial ointment. Some compounding pharmacies will also even do the mixing alone what we do is we just prescribe both as individual. We'll tell them to kind of use um, half and half and, and kind of mix it together and apply twice a day. But I think down the road, especially in the next few years, we'll see a lot easier regimens for patients to kind of um, do at-home field cancerization. Other things that we'll do, we're pretty aggressive with cryotherapy. anytime patients are seeing us. You know, there's sometimes patients will be like, oh, please just avoid my face. We we kind of, in our um, transplant recipients, we we don't give them an option, um, because we just know that these will turn bad at some point. Um, We're we're very aggressive in terms of doing um, PDT. We'll incubate longer in them. Um, oftentimes we'll again debulk some of the hyperkeratotic lesions with the curette before they get the PDT um, therapy. Red light is thought to penetrate a little deeper um, so if you have a red light that's probably um, preferable over blue light but you can still get nice um, results with blue light therapy. We'll do TCA peels even on our transplant recipients um, especially for kind of extremities or wide surface areas where it may be hard um, for a patient to kind of t- you know tolerate PDT um, or, or get the appropriate coverage that we like. And there, there are some people also doing ablative laser resurfacing um, for field cancerization. Again, probably not the best way, but um, another option um, if, uh, if a patient is looking for also some other benefits. We also do a lot of chemotherapy wraps, um, especially for our patients who have kind of Um, AKA just wrapping around their entire arms, uh, uh, upper arms or even lower arms. And how do we do this? We'll prescribe them a tube of topical 5-FU. We'll tell them to bring it into their next visit. We will then numb up any hyperkeratotic lesions on the extremity that we're trying to treat. We'll cure it and kind of hypercate the base. um, And then we'll apply the uh, 5-FU. For an upper extremity, we're probably using about a third of the tube for a lower extremity. probably close to half a tube um, each application. And we're applying it circumferentially around um, that extremity. And then what we'll do is um, we'll use z- zinc oxide or the UNA boot um, bandage, um, which is impregnated with zinc oxide. We'd wrap it not too tight, um, not the way you would if you're trying to, you know, help for um, you know, stasis disease or whatnot, or, or stasis ulcer because, um, again, we want patients to tolerate it to a decent degree. Then we'll put the Curlix gauze around the um, Unaboot wrap and then a self-adherent wrap over that uh, for about a week uh, for, um, uh, over that. And we'll, we'll keep that simple um, chemo wrap on for a week. So, for example, if we'll do it on a Monday, we'll tell them, hey, cut it off on Sunday. That way you can, they can actually shower and bathe that arm. And they're, they're back in our... Um, office um, that following Monday to reapply. Um, sometimes with three weeks alone, we've seen great results. Um, but oftentimes, especially on those lower extremity, um, thicker lesions um, or, or broader lesions, sometimes we'll kind of keep that on for eight weeks. There's no great time course. We're really basing it off the patient's tolerability um, and um, you know, the heat, et cetera. Um, but we've had really nice results with these chemo wraps. Oftentimes, when you you know when we prescribe topical 5FU, um, that exposure to the air is what causes so much of the discomfort. You know, and, you know, wind blows and they kind of feel very sensitive by, um, to it. We found that our patients who are getting these chemo wraps done, almost have little to no pain or discomfort whatsoever because the healing is occurring at the same time as the application of the chemotherapy. Um, And we've again seen incredibly um, great results with very, very good tolerability. The biggest patient complaint is not washing that area or keeping it dry in their baths and showers for the week that it's on. Um, So that's the biggest complaint. It's no complaints about pain really. Um, Again, it minimizes discomfort, expedites healing. Um, And and again, the biggest issue with our patients is compliance, right? So telling a patient to do something twice a day for an extended period of time, most of them are probably 50% compliant at best. Let's be honest, you know, I'm prescribed things and I'm, uh, you know, as as physicians and and PAs, we're probably the worst patients sometimes. Imagine our patients, they're they're not being as compliant as we think that they may be. Um, So the chemo wraps really help to maximize compliance. Tip number six, start chemo prevention early. Um, and what are some tools that we have for chemo prevention? Vitamin B3 is an incredibly great drug, um, um, but specifically nicotinamide um, for it. And I'll be talking about that in a second. Acetriantin is another option, and I briefly mentioned oral capsidabine before. Um, we'll be talking about that. So, vitamin B3, specifically nicotinamide or niacinamide, these are the same vitamins, nicotinamide or niacinamide. It's the amide form of vitamin B3, um, and I'm not talking about niacin, which is also vitamin B3, but that's the ester formulation. Nicotinamide um, or or vitamin B3, it's a precursor of um, NAD, which is, again, the essential cofactor in ATP production, just a little memory jogger for our Krebs cycle that we all have to memorize at some point. But vitamin B3, it prevents ATP um, depletion, it boosts cellular energy and enhan- enhances DNA repair, and it also reduces the level of immunosuppression um, induced by UV without actually altering the patient's baseline immunity. It is protective against UV radiation, and it is shown to reduce rates of new non melanoma skin cancers by 23%, and also of new actinic keratoses. So this was a, um, a face um RCT to, um, published in uh, October of 2015 in New England Journal of Medicine um, that showed the significant benefits of nicotinamide. Pretty much, you know, I, I practice in Texas, like 95% of my patients are terribly sun-exposed, whether they or immunocompetent. So pretty much I'm telling all my patients to start this as a preventative measure. Again, nicotinamide, um, it's the amide form. This is something that you really need to educate your patients on to make sure they don't go and buy niacin. Niacin is much more readily available. If you go to any supermarket, um, pharmacy, etc. niacin's always there, but nicotinamide is much more challenging to kind of find. Um, and the benefit of nicotinamide specifically is it does not have the same vasodilatory side effects of flushing, itching, hypotension, headaches that niacin has. Um, it also does not lower cholesterol, which is the reason many people do take niacin. Um, the way you dose it, it's 500 milligrams twice a day. Um, and I pretty much tell my patients to purchase it online. Uh, it's very readily available on Amazon and other kind of um, websites, but Amazon, it's, it's cheap, easy. Um, and the most important thing is there's no significant adverse reactions. So you don't have to monitor blood work or, or labs per, per se. Um, there is a theoretical risk for toxicity if you dose greater than three grams per day. But again, we're doing one gram total per day. Um, in liver transplant recipients, we just like to mention it to our liver transplant docs. We have, because um, they're always hesitate, hesitant to prescribe anything new that's kind of cleared by liver. Um, and and f- to kind of appease them, we will kind of do minimal labs just to make sure nothing's trending upwards. But we haven't had a single patient um, who's had an issue whatsoever. And again, nicotinamide is thought to be very, very safe with um, almost no um, adverse reactions. The other medication that we often prescribe is acitretin. Um, it's a second-generation retinoid. The biggest um, issue is that it is p- pregnancy category X, so we, we, it's challenging because we do have some young um, females of childbearing age. Um, you know, they may have CF, uh, cystic fibrosis, and. Um, potentially may want to so again it's contraindicated in that um, similar to Accutane for example uh, or isotretinoin. Um, The way we dose it again we start anywhere from 10 to 25 milligrams if it's kind of a bigger um, male we'll probably jump to 25 milligrams if it's a more petite smaller um, patient we'll usually start at 10 milligrams and kind of slowly titrate up to ensure tolerability. and the number of squamous cells um, are thought to be much lower while on the drug. The only issue with acetranin is once you start it, it's kind of, they need to be on it for life. And you have to prepare them. It's something that they have to be ready to take for the rest of their lives. Um, because the second they turn, stop taking it, the squamous cells that may have been kind of hidden by this drug, they all rebound pretty quickly. Um, so it's it's really important to make sure that the patient's gonna be um, compliant, um, can adhere to you know alcohol limitations, et cetera. Um, and again, it has the same kind of general side effects um, as isotretinoin, the xerosis, the chelitis, the photosensitivity, um, and the potential for dyslipidemia. So you do have to monitor um, uh, lipid panel with isotretinin. And again, The biggest also contraindication is making sure that the patient is not on methotrexate for the immunosuppression um, because of potential um, drug-drug interactions. The third drug um, to discuss about chemo prevention is oral capsidabine. It is kind of our last resort, but we do have a number of patients on it in our clinic. Um, And these are our patients who are just developing bad squames month after month after month. It's Almost six to 12 squames a year. Um, oral capsidabine is a pro-drug of 5-FU, so it's we, the way we kind of convince our patients that it's a great drug is it's like the oral form of topical, 5, um, topical uh, 5-FU. It is FDA-approved for colon and breast cancer, Um, so again, this is an off-label indication in in regards to its chemoprophylaxis. And the way we kind of give it to patients, um, first of all, we don't prescribe it ourselves. There are some most surgeons um, in the nation who do, but I think um, from a counseling perspective and a monitoring perspective, it's much easier for an oncologist to prescribe it. We work closely with oncologists um, and, and they prescribe it. And there's a lot of different regimens that you can do. Some will do one week on, one week off, kind of for three months, so they're getting six weeks of the drug, and then at some point you can always repeat it you don't see the same rebound that you would with as you So they can do one cycle for three months and kind of hope to keep things at bay, or they can even repeat that even once a year. There are, of of course, adverse effects that we do counsel patients on, um, and the oncologist does, such as fatigue, diarrhea, um, oral ulcers, hand, foot, mouth um, syndrome. Um, And there is a lot more research that needs to be done for oral capsidabine in regards to chemoprophylaxis, This has been kind of our last resort in our bad transplant recipients who kind of didn't have many other options. They were already on oral acetaminate, they're already on nicotinamide, um, and this is kind of something systemic that, that hopefully can keep things at bay. And, you know, there are, potential future directions. Um, th- there's always this controversial role of the HPV vaccine, especially in our transplant recipients, but just to kind of make you guys aware, there was a case, um, uh, uh, two cases reported in JAMA Dermatology, just published online February 2017, where two patients um, who got the HPV vaccine had a significant reduction in squamous cells and a 100% reduction in basal cells in a period of 13 to 16 months. These were immunocompetent patients, so the question always is, does this have the same role in immunosuppressed patients um, but i think over the next few years we will see a little bit more information on the hpv vaccine and the potential role for um, kind of uh, prevention tip number seven um recognize high risk lesions it's incredibly important you know sometimes we'll have squames that are, are you know tiny little ditzels and you kind of just tell the patient oh you know see the most surgeon whenever you can but then you have these really nasty, huge, rapidly growing, poorly differentiated um, squames that are in high-risk locations, such as the temple, ear, lip, etc. Um, and those you don't—you tell the you, you literally should get on the phone with the most surgeon and say, "How quickly can you get this guy in?" Um, sometimes it, it, it probably doesn't—if you don't kind of scare the patient, to letting them understand and and. Um, and, and know that this is a bad squamous cell, sometimes they'll just put it off for a few weeks. And as the most surgeon, we, we're not screening every single fax or a referral that comes through um, to see which one needs to be done this week and which one doesn't. We kind of guide our referring providers to let us know which ones need to be treated immediately. So the second you see what is considered to be more of a high-risk lesions, you should be kind of advocating um, to, to get that patient in as early as possible. Um, at Southwestern, what we have is we always have one, two, spots blocked out per day um, for these high-risk, urgent kind of referrals that need to be treated uh, much more quickly than your average little ditzel. Um, um, So again, these are your, um, these are our high-risk squamous cells, lesions greater than two centimeters, high-risk locations such as ear, lips, scalp, temples, um, um, Tumor depth, um, and again, our pathologists don't really quantify Breslow depth or tumor depth on their path reports, um, because oftentimes when we biopsy squames, it's very different than biopsying what looks to be a melanoma. Um, We're kind of taking a partial biopsy, but studies have shown that tumors that are invading deep into the fat have a much higher risk for local recurrence and regional and distant mets as well. Um, So it's something to consider if it's a nasty squame, get a deeper piece of of the tissue, Um, So that way the pathologist can, can, at least in the microscopic description, you can kind of see how deep is this tumor invading. Um, Poorly differentiated squamous cells, such as, um, you know, that that squamous cell that has single cell spread even, um, you know, much poorer outcomes, um, and and lesions that have um, perineural invasion, again, much poorer outcomes. Unfortunately, you know, we're still working on the best staging system for staging squamous cells. You know, historically, it's, we've had the AGCC. Um, initially, AGCC lumped basal cells and squamous cells kind of in one category. As we all know, they are very different tumors, especially in transplant recipients.. Um, what I kind of use more so, uh, more recently, is the Brigham and Women's Hospital um, staging criteria for squamous cells. And this really helps to kind of guide us when adjuvant therapy may be more indicated. Um, it, it's 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 not the it, there's no great system at this point, but the Brigham Women's system has shown to be the best. Again, high-risk lesions, um, we kind of talked about. Every time a patient who's been immuno- is immunosuppressed for whatever reason, we're doing a total lymph node exam. Um, we do that often with our melanoma patients, but sometimes we forget to do that with our immunosuppressed patients who've had squamous cell. Um, that's what's gonna kill them. It's that regional and distant met from their squamous cell is gonna kill them, in addition to, obviously, their, to any melanoma that they may have had. So always do a full and complete lymph node assessment. Um, the staging systems um, are not validated in immunosuppressed patients, um, but again, the Brigham and Women staging criteria is thought to better risk stratify squamous cells in, in immunosuppressed patients um, in regards to the risk for nodal Mets and local recurrence. And, then, and the Brigham and Women or BWH staging criteria is also thought to better prognosticate metastatic disease in patients with hematologic malignancy. Tip number eight, be available and treat early. Um, again, thin, low-risk melanomas have an excellent long-term prognosis compared to those diagnosed at later stages. So if a patient who's in, been immunosuppressed specifically calls you, hey, I'm worried that I have a new mole, get them in as early as possible. In immunosuppressed patients, again, be available to them similarly for their potential squamous cells um, because their squamous cells can present much, with much more aggressive features, with faster growth patterns, and a greater rate of meth. So, Be flexible in terms of getting those patients in as early if they're worried about kind of a bleeding sore that's not healing, that's your sign that, hey, this should be biopsied as soon as possible. Um, And what we do is we educate all our immunosuppressed patients to call us as soon as possible if a new lesion develops. We've trained our our, our, um, scheduling staff and and the way our EMR works, we're able to see who's kind of this high-risk transplant um, recipient that they know to ask us when they can get overbooked in. Don't, we tell our patients, do not wait for your next appointment to come see us for these lesions biopsy. The second you notice something, call us immediately so we can get you in early, the earlier we biopsy, the earlier we can treat. Um, and again, it's about educating the office staff so they're aware of potentially holding spots, overbooking, um, et cetera, and expediting treatment. Don't let patients delay. So educate your patients, they shouldn't wait. And also don't let your staff um, delay. Oftentimes, your staff is great because they want to block unreasonable kind of requests for overbooking and whatnot for transplant recipients. They need to make that exception. Um, In terms of treatment, for lower squamous cells, we're, we're I, what I would consider we're more likely to be more definitive in terms of um, treatment We're more likely to do a scrape and burn or ADNC or um, excise it and, and stitch it up. We're much less likely to use topicals PDT for primary treatment of their um, skin cancer. We use it often for field treatment but we're really never advocate using that as a primary treatment for the squamous cell, because the cure rates are much lower. And why are the cure rates lower? Again, it's an issue of compliance. Can a patient, can actually, is a patient gonna actually do the regimen that you prescribe? Most likely not, and that's why the risk for recurrence is greater. Um, So we definitely are more likely to um, excise. For a higher risk squam, again, we're excising it and um, we're doing most surgery. We're ensuring clear margins and oftentimes um, we'll consider whether simple lymph node biopsy may be indicated, um, whether um, a CT or ultrasound of their nodes may be indicated. Every institution is a little different in terms of who advocates for simple lymph node biopsy. If they're not advocating for simple lymph node biopsy for squamous cell, they may instead do um, kind of more high-def ultrasound and CT imaging, um, and um, those can be helpful to kind of detect early nodal spread. And then again, for, adjuvant, uh, for high-risk gamut cells, we're always contemplating, hey, should we get radiation in addition, even if we've gotten clear margins? It's important, again, uh, so tip number nine, communicate with the transplant and, um, team as much as possible. Um, and, and it's really, you know, Oftentimes as derms, sometimes we're like, oh, the transplant teams know what they're doing. They actually don't necessarily fully understand sometimes the implications of a diagnosis of skin cancer in an in a, uh, immunosuppressed patient. So again, we'll, we'll talk to them about discontinuing and switching phototoxic drugs. Uh, we've pretty much tried to institute, so no anti-rejection um, regimen includes azathioprine. This is something we as derms were able to provide them the literature to make that changeover. We've um, really helped with the bone marrow transplant team to educate them that voriconazole should not be used on end for years just for prophylaxis alone. It should only be used for treatment. So that's where we as dermatologists were able to make the change. And, and, and y'all can make a similar change in your local communities as well. Um, we're, we're always communicating with them in regards to the lowest dosing regimens um, of immunosuppression that may be possible. We do consider the switch for mTOR inhibitors in select cases. Again, it's a little controversial, but we it's its a discussion that we always have with the transplant team. Again, if they have um, HIV, HIV um, we, we try to make sure that they're on um, uh, uh, retroviral medication as well. Anytime there's a missed appointment, we let not only – we don't just try to – coordinate with the patient again to get rescheduled in, where you let their transplant coordinators know. Their transplant coordinators are actually phenomenal in making sure and kind of harassing the patient to get them back in the clinic, Um, because they have their goals of making sure the patients are, are, their overall health is taken care of, so they're they're really great about that. Um, We're telling the, the transplant team every time a skin cancer is diagnosed, um, and kind of we kind of put it in perspective of the number per month or the number per year. Um, it gives us a stronger argument of when we want to advocate for lower levels of immunosuppression. Um, and sometimes, you know, if a patient's a renal transplant recipient, sometimes we'll say, hey, it's probably better to put the patient back on hemodialysis and stop all of their anti-rejection um, medication because they may have much worse outcomes. So there's, that's always a possibility in renal transplant recipients. And then we'll also you know, tell them anytime we're starting azathioprine or niacinamide, um, especially in liver transplant recipients. And then again, multidisciplinary care is so important in these um, immunosuppressed patients. Because of their poor outcomes, we have a much lower threshold for initiating multidisciplinary care. Um, for example, if they have PNI, we're much more likely to consider um, adjuvant RT and or um, chemo. Um, So we're often working with radiation oncology docs, uh, surgical oncology docs, ENT docs, uh, medical oncology, especially if we're initiating oral capsidabine, and then of course the primary transplant team. So these are my top 10 tips. Um, I think they're pretty much written on the handout that um, was provided. Educating is so key. Um, screening early and screening often. Looking at their medications very closely, especially for azathioprine, voriconazole. Um, adjusting any high-risk medications and communicating that with the, with the primary team. Reviewing their history of skin cancer. Um, being very, a lot more aggressive in t- terms of treating their field cancerization because it's not a matter of if it's going to develop into the squam cell, it's just a matter of when. Um, and chemo wraps and, and PDT are very helpful for that starting orals um, earlier um, for chemo prevention, such as oral acetretin. Pretty much everyone, every single patient of mine is on oral niacinamide, um, 500 BID. Um, And then for those really bad cases, we'll kind of refer them to oncology for capsidabine. We're always being mindful of trying to stage these aggressive squamous cells because that helps to guide us when we need to be more aggressive with adjuvant therapy. Um, Just be available for these patients and treat early. Make sure your staff is available to them um, and educate them to call you immediately as well. Communication is critical, especially with more information about the patient. Hey, this patient has 10 squames in a matter of six months. Please adjust the immunosuppression medication regimen. The transplant team is much more likely to listen to that than just you calling them, hey, can you lower their immunosuppression? They may not understand why you're asking this. So the more information you provide them, the better. And then again, multidisciplinary care is often indicated for these patients. Um, I just want to acknowledge um, we have a great PA on our transplant team, um, Cynthia Griffith, who has really helped um, our uh, clinic boom, and then um, Dr. Stephanie Savory is one of our medical dermatologists um, on our team, and Dr. Divya Srivastava is the other most surgeon on our high-risk clinic team as well. Thank you so much everyone. Um, This is my email, feel free to email anytime if you have any questions. Um, Happy, you know, sometimes it's just six months down the road you have this tough case and you want another kind of opinion or just another thought, I'd be happy to kind of help guide you. Um, And um, so feel free to email anytime. Thank you guys so much. I think it goes to, thank you. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice? As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient Cool, okay, so we have about five minutes for questions. Um, first question, I guess, this is this is a cool setup with, with these types of questions. Um, regarding transplant patients and screening with a history of skin cancer, what if you have a lung transplant patient with a history of less than five skin cancers, over 20 plus years, all inside to your BCCs, would you still see this patient every three to six months? You know, that that's tough. Um, I probably would see them at least every six months, given their history. Again, there is that flexibility and variability, and I think that's the challenge of implementing set guidelines for patients. Those are kind of our guidelines, but remember guidelines and rules are meant to be broken to a degree. I would still see them every six months, because it just takes one bad squame to kind of make a really big impact um, on the patient's you know morbidity mortality. So we, I would probably still see them every six months. Um, do you follow the appropriate use criteria guidelines for moes? Um, these patients have MOSE every month, or do you consider excision with wider margins? Um, at our institution, we'll do a lot more excisions with wider margins. Um, we always consider appropriate use criteria guidelines for MOSE. Some people argue that um, immunosuppressed equals MOSE automatically. We're not necessarily, um, our institution at least is not in that mindset at that point, Um, but we will oftentimes say not just, you know, four to five millimeter margins, this patient needs a six to eight millimeter margin excision Um, because it's also tough. Patients, some patients don't want to spend a day with us you know, every week getting MOS done with the waiting time and whatnot. So sometimes we try to figure out what truly need MOS and, um, and which can be done with a wide local excision. The other thing is what we do at our institution, um, you know, some, some Mohs surgeons will only do one lesion per day. Um, there are reasons for reimbursement and whatnot, We're fortunate that we just take care of it, whether they may not be reimbursed or not. Uh, Most likely they don't, but we do sometimes three to four lesions on on a single given day Um, just because we understand it's so challenging to sometimes see multiple docs and come back multiple times. Um, Do you use the Mayo protocol and use Effudex regularly in transplant patients to um, keep AKs down? I guess I'm not as familiar with the Mayo protocol specifically, but in terms of FUDEX, yes, we are prescribing it incredibly regularly. Um, we'll tell patients, you know, it's tough to do an entire face, for example, at one given treatment for tolerability reasons. So we'll tell them, hey, let's do the forehead first, let's do the right cheek next, and jaw, left cheek um, thereafter, we'll do upper extremities um, and hands kinda um, um, as well, so. We're, you know, these patients constantly have a refill um, available to them to keep applying. So, yes, we definitely use um, FUDEX pretty reg- regularly. Um, what's the recommended dosage for Acetran for um, prophylaxis? We, my minimal goal is 25 mgs per day. There are some patients who will be able to tolerate even 50 milligrams per day. Usually, these are patients who are much bigger. Um, you know, 250, 300 pounds um, who can tolerate it. Usually, the reason we can't reach that dose in everyone is the tolerability of the dry um, cirrhosis, the chelitis, um, and oftentimes the lipid dysfunction as well. So, it's always a balancing act, but my minimum is 25 megs per day if they can tolerate it. I do think, and some people can't get 25 milligrams a day, there is still some positive to get them to 20 megs a day or 10 megs a day potentially, but my goal is 25 milligrams. Can you explain how you perform chemo wraps? Absolutely. So, chemo wraps again, you take one extremity, um, you you prescribe the effudex. So, for an upper extremity, essentially, you're using a third of the tube, you're smearing it on circumferentially from wrist to elbow, pretty much. You get the Una boot, which is zinc oxide impregnated wrap, essentially. You're wrapping it around. It's just continuous wrapping. You do overlap by about a third. So it goes topical 5FU, Una boot wrap, where that's well, impregnated with zinc oxide, then Curlex, which is just a rounded gauze essentially that goes over it. The zinc oxide um, uh, Una boot wrap is just messy, so that Curlex keeps things kind of drier the, from the outside perspective and doesn't. Kind of get over everything and after that is coban which is like a self-adherent wrap it's the same thing that you know if you ever get your blood drawn that's what coban is that's what they wrap to put a little pressure from um, where they access your your vein so five fu, few about a third of a tube for an upper extremity about half a tube for the lower extremity then it's um, the Unaboot Wrap, curlex, Coban. Pretty simple, actually. Um, what we will do for hyperkeratotic lesions before we do the wrap, we'll curette them down. We'll numb them, curette them down, hypercate the base, and then put the um, Unaboot Wrap on. Okay, do you screen patients for skin cancer on TNF-alpha inhibitors or any other biologics routinely? So... N- I, again, my, my primary focus is most surgery, and I do run the transplant clinic, so I'm really not necessarily seeing patients solely if they're on TNF alpha inhibitors. Again, for our indications, if like for psoriasis alone, for example, the studies have shown that it doesn't increase your risk for skin cancer. So I think your annual visits with, with the patient um, who's being prescribed, I think that's ample, but make sure that they're actually getting undressed to see everything and to examine them, but I don't think they need to be more frequent than, um, than you're seeing them for their psoriasis, for example. I guess that's time. Thank you so much, guys. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.